0: we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. The idea that you will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. The Aborigines thought that heaven was an island to the west. The Finns thought Heaven was an island to the east. Mexicans, Peruvians, Polynesians thought that when you died, you went to the sun or the moon. Native Americans believed that after you die, your spirit would hunt the spirits of buffalo. In Egypt, those bodies that were wrapped, those mummies, had maps right next to them. And those maps were supposed to guide you into the future. They were supposed to guide you into the next world. A Roman philosopher said, the day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. In the Roman catacombs, where many Christians were martyred, you can find inscriptions that say, in Christ, Alexander is not dead, but lives. One who lives with God. He was taken up to his eternal home. Although these differ, the destination differs. But the unifying testimony of human history is that there is something more than this life. Anthropology suggests that this life is not all there is. Anthropology also suggests that you pay $158 for a shirt. I was, there, I was there yesterday. The major faiths of the world, they believe in life after death. Our fascination with life after death, our fascination with a, a realm beyond what we can see and sense has made its way into our films, into our songs, into our art. We're fascinated with what lies beyond this life. Of course, um, you know uh, that this is being uh, contested. Every civilization in human history has been shaped by a belief that you will live forever somewhere. You know that that's not the case for everyone in our day, I was listening to Christopher Hitchens. He's brilliant. Um, He said, religion has run out of justifications thanks to the telescope and the microscope. It no longer offers an explanation of anything important. Religion has run out of justifications thanks to the microscope and the telescope. It It doesn't offer an explanation of anything important. And I guess what I would say to Christopher Hitchens, if he were here and alive, and it would probably be my only good question, and he'd probably have a way to answer it, but I would ask, why then are billions of people hankering for spirituality, for a sense of transcendence? Why? In spite of the massive achievements, I'm not minimizing the massive achievements of the microscope and the telescope. I'm just saying, knowing what we know today, why are billions of people across the face of the earth hankering for transcendence? There's something in them that isn't satisfied with what the telescope and the microscope uh, tell us. Because the microscope, and the telescope, and science tell us about how, and they tell us about when, but they don't tell us about who, and they don't tell us about why, and we want to know the the answers to those bigger questions. Freud said this, Religion is an illusion. But the problem is that it falls within our instinctual desires. Religion is an illusion. The problem is that it falls within our instinctual desires. The question I'd have for Freud is, where did we get those instinctual desires? How come it seems that we are hardwired for forever? What is it that's been put inside of us? The Bible claims in Ecclesiastes 3 that eternity has been placed in our hearts. We believe as Christians that forever has been hardwired into us. We don't believe that it's social conditioning, that God's actually placed it inside of people, not just here in the church, but people everywhere, a hunger for forever C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all. Except in so far as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when The real want for heaven is present in us. We don't recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise I love this quote, that there are longings present inside of us that we don't know how to recognize as a longing for heaven. The reason that you don't recognize the longings is because they're unmet longings and they typically come out as frustration. That's what happens with an unmet longing is we get ticked. You get frustrated when longings go unmet. And so... Maybe you won't recognize the longing for heaven, but maybe you'll recognize this frustration. Something in you that's just convinced there's got to be more than this. There's... It's not right. There's there's more than this. this. This is not the way it should be. If you've ever... Ask that question, you've longed for heaven. This is not not right. There's, There's nothing more natural than death. None of us will escape it. No one ever has. Yet when it happens, there's something in us that says, this isn't right. This is unnatural. What is that? Where does that longing come from? That frustration, this desire, this hunger. that has been hardwired into us. Where does it come from? C.S. Lewis also writes, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. I want to help you today connect your desires to a desirable destination. I want to help connect your longings to the life after this one. For many of us, Heaven is less than desirable. Am I right? We don't see it as being the fulfillment of our desires. In fact, I don't think for many it's a very desirable destination. As a kid, you're told, you know, you're going to want to go there. There's like streets of gold, you know. It was kind of like, ah. Can we skateboard on those streets? You know, I don't know. And then it's like <laughs> Moses is there, you know, and it's kind of like, yeah, I know, I heard his story already. You know, I'm not dying to meet that guy. I said it last week, um, but it's it's just better than the other option, right? It's like we don't want to go to heaven, but we certainly don't want to go to hell. You know, it's like, well, yeah, it's the best of the worst. I'll take heaven. I'll vote for Mitt Romney. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so... If I'm honest, I at times have been really scared of the eternal sing-along in the sky. Anybody else very scared of the eternal sing-along in the sky? The never-ending church service is just terrifying to me. I love, I love being here. I was sitting in the front row thinking, I, I just love uh, being here. I already felt uh, so charged by Jared and, and Noel and... Just getting to take communion. Just, I just love it. And then I don't want to do this for forever. You know? I love you guys. And I'm really scared of doing church for eternity. Um, there, you know, there's... Oh, man. I could... Billy uh, Joel wrote a song called Only the Good Die Young. He wrote it when he was uh, 28. I don't know if he still agrees with these things, but... He said, they say that there is a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. There's a famous Farside cartoon where Gary Larson draws a guy who has arrived. He's sitting on a cloud, halo intact. And then the caption reads... I wish I'd brought a magazine. And as funny as this stuff is, um, I think there's something in us that it's a little bit scared of eternity, a little bit scared of forever. And so when we're asked to fix our eyes on uh, forever, again, this, this place, this destination that we're supposed to be really excited about is, is less than desirable I've, I've found myself in the last few weeks just, just uh, praying this prayer. You know, the psalmist wrote that your love is better than life. And I've, I've sung it before. And But I think if I'm really honest, what I would probably say is your love makes my life better. Your love is like an enhancer that I order at Jamba Juice. But what I really want is my life. And I want my life to be better. And so... Your love makes my life better. And I'm I'm wanting to come to the place where I feel so gripped and obsessed with heaven that I would actually say, no, your love is better than my life. Heaven is better than this life. What you've prepared for me is better. So, I want to, in the next two weeks, paint a clear and compelling picture of heaven that that's what i'm wanting to do but i'm finding that in order to paint a clear and compelling picture of heaven i'm having to dispel some myths so this morning will be an episode of myth busters because in order for us to see clearly it's almost like we have to clean the windshield there's so much that's piled up that's really not in this book and i have found it very exciting Um, to clear that stuff away and see what the Bible says. And so, in order for me to set a stage for where we're going next, it's almost like we have to just clear some things away, you know? And I don't know where this clutter came from in my life, but I'm interested in getting out of the way, getting it out of the way, so I can have a clear and compelling picture of heaven. Are you guys up for that? One of the things that I think needs to be cleared away, one of the things that for me has created confusion um, and really clouded my my vision of heaven is, is the clamor around the end times. I'm just preaching to my, myself here and, and maybe you agree with me. But the conversation around the end times is in the way of a clear and compelling view of heaven. You know, the judgments, the timelines, the charts, the antichrists, the raptures... The timelines, the charts, the Antichrist, the raptures. It is in the way for me of a clear and compelling view of our destination. Listen to me. We are majoring on minors. There are more books written about tribulation than there are about our final destination. I think how and when we get there is important. It has its place on stage But it's taken center stage. And the reason that there are so many opinions is because we don't know. We don't know. And my frustration, what's in the way of a clear and compelling view of heaven is that it seems like, again, the conversation centers on tribulation and not on our final destination. It's more about the when and the how we get there, than it is about the who, the what, and the why. And when I start fixing my eyes on the who and the what and the why, it starts to get clearer and more compelling. I think that's what we experienced this morning as Jared, um, I mean, Jared did that. We've experienced, we've tasted that this morning. Again, let me say how, when. Arguments over timelines, charts, and antichrists, they have their place on stage, but they should not be at center stage, and I believe they're at center stage. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of an antichrist. If you're reading the book of Revelation looking for an antichrist, you're missing the point. At center stage is Jesus Christ. And what's clouding this for me is this clamor around the end times. I don't want anything to do with it. I know I'm a pastor and I should be more spiritual than that. I will not go see the new Nick Cage Left Behind movie. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't even want to have a conversation about it. So don't bring it up with me. I don't like it. I just don't. We've majored on minors and it's off-putting to me. Again, It has its place. But don't put it at center stage. Can I put something else at center stage right now? Something clear? Something compelling? Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea existed no longer. I also saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will exist no longer. Grief, crying and pain will exist no longer. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. The who is compelling. It's clear to me. The what, the why we're there is because the blood of Jesus Christ has made us new. It's not only saved our souls, it's saved all of creation. That's that's what's going to happen in redemption. It's clear. It's compelling. It's exciting. I am tired of talking about the end times more than I talk about the end. I don't want to talk about tribulation. I want to talk about our destination. I don't know about you. The clamor that surrounds the end times is off-putting and in the way. The other thing I'm having to clear from the stage of my heart, kind of just sweep up and get off, is the influence of Greek philosophy on Western Christianity. It's in the way of me seeing God's plan and seeing the way God has set it up, and maybe this will be the case for you, but I've been asking myself, okay, so I'm not finding any fat little angels, not finding any halos, not finding any harps, and I'm not finding myself sitting on a cloud. Where did I get these ideas? Where did I get the ideas, the terrifying ideas, that I am going to live in, like... Uh, non-existence in an ethereal place? Where did I get the idea that heaven is not physical or material? Where did I get the idea that I was going to float off somewhere? Where did that come from? As Christians in the West, we always have to uh, account for uh, Greek thinking. And the way that it's influenced us. It's always kind of mixed up in things uh, for us. And so you, you may know of this guy, um, Plato, but he was a famous Greek philosopher. And he believed this really popular idea that your body was a hindrance, that what was physical was in the way of what was spiritual, the body was bad. And the Spirit was good. The Spirit's highest destiny was to be free from the body. The ultimate would be to be free from your body. He created a dichotomy between the physical, your body, and your spirit. These were two very separate things. The physical was viewed as an obstacle... This guy Plato rubbed off on Philo, who rubbed off on Origen, who rubbed off on Clement. And the early church fathers, some of these early church fathers, thought it would be amazing to bring the best of Greek philosophy into our faith. And they were wrong. And these ideas within Greek philosophy began to impact the church, just like today. There are things in our culture That are impacting our church. The Apostle Paul, he writes this really detailed defense of a physical, bodily resurrection. And he writes it to the Corinthians. Because the Corinthians were immersed in Greek philosophy. They'd come to buy into this dichotomy. This separation. That your spirit's good your body is bad, that the physical is in the way of what is spiritual, that things that are material are not sacred, they're not special, so therefore they should be left behind. Can I read, uh, again, just a, an amazing passage to you out of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul again is bringing a defense of a bodily resurrection that we won't leave our bodies behind but our bodies will be redeemed. 1 Corinthians 15:12 Now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified, it, testified about God that He raised up Christ. Whom He did not raise up, in fact, if the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have placed our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep; for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Please read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 this week. Amazing defense of a physical bodily resurrection, that we will not exist in eternity as a disembodied spirit in an ethereal, I don't know where, somewhere out there. An amazing defense of it to this this Corinthian church being influenced by this Greek philosophy that your spirits float off somewhere and that you forever leave your body behind. Paul's reminding this church what happened to Jesus is going to happen to you. Just as you have inherited Adam's deal, you're going to get your hands on what happened to Jesus. What Jesus tasted, you will taste. What Jesus experienced, you will experience. The Greeks believed your body was a tomb that material didn't matter. And so our ideas of a disembodied ghost floating off into nowhere have been influenced by this Greek philosophy that what is material does not matter to God and what is physical is in the way of what is truly, truly spiritual. Listen to this quote. This is from a Christian brother. Only our redeemed spirits can live in a spiritual realm like heaven. Therefore, the life we know now as spiritual reality will continue in heaven. But we shall not need or desire the things associated with our present physical bodies simply because we shall not possess physical bodies in heaven. Right now, I mean, this, these ideas are still impacting us, still affecting us. How many would say, I, I've fallen prey to this, that what is physical is in the way of what is spiritual. What's super spiritual has nothing to do with what is material. And if what you're into is material, then you can't be spiritual. These are two very separate things. I experienced this week, one of my friends, it was just in a guy group, he says to me, um, he says... Yeah, we uh, my my wife and I uh, we listen to worship music while we make love, and I think all of us like sat back, you know, and we were like, I don't know really what to do with that, you know. And it was like everyone's kind of nodding, but inside we're kind of like, I don't know about that, man. And I'm all for worshiping, and I'm all for sex, but don't don't do those. Those are too separate things, you know, you just separate those things, just compartmentalize that stuff, create a dichotomy, create a dichotomy, because God's not interested in this stuff, in fact, we made this up, God didn't design this, God designed this, we've all got this going on, where we compartmentalize our lives, where we create a dichotomy, and it's honestly creating a lot of destruction in the church And destruction in in your life. There is something very frightening about this idea. I don't know about you guys, but I am very uh, frightened about existing in eternity as a disembodied spirit. Uh, Anyone else share my fear of existing in eternity as a disembodied spirit? I think the reason is, is because everything pleasurable that I've enjoyed in this life, I've enjoyed through my senses. And so, when, when, when heaven as is described as otherworldly, and and beyond my senses, I don't want anything to do with it. There's. Good news, and I get to share next week about what the Bible teaches about the physical. I get to share next week about how matter matters to God. But let me just uh, say this, that uh, it's more tangible and it's more physical than you think and it is still incredibly spiritual don't separate the two what is physical what is material will also be spiritual for us for eternity the other thing that's in the way confusion for me I don't know about for you but when I read about heaven I don't know what's literal or what's figurative I don't know what's symbolic or what I'm supposed to take serious. Anybody had this issue where you're reading about it and you're like, I don't know what to do uh, with that. Something it's just kept me from like a clear and compelling vision of heaven is not being able to discern between what's literal and what's figurative as I read about heaven. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, if you've ever read it before, you start reading about you know, uh, blood flowing up to the horse's bridles. And you're thinking, whoa. I don't know quite what to do with that. And, that, and that's, that's what happens if you get past the seven-horned, seven-eyed lamb. Then you're like, whoa, wow. Don't know what to do with that. And then it's like, well, then there's this woman and she's clothed with the sun. And, and that's a lot better than being a prostitute that sits on many waters because she's in there as well. And then there's this great red dragon with seven heads, you know. And by the time you get through it, you're like, I don't know what to do with any of this. Is this literal? Are the Laodiceans uh, really lukewarm? Like with temperature, will Jesus really spit them out? Or am I, am I supposed to think that this is uh, for real? Is this serious or is it just symbolic? And I think most of the time we go, I can't take this serious. This must be symbolic. This is figurative language. This is allegory. I don't know what this is, so I'm going to dismiss it. But then when we keep reading the book, we start reading about cities. Gates. Bridges. Horses trees. And we begin to think, well, that can't be a bridge, a horse, a city, or a tree. It's got to mean something else. And so we spiritualize the meaning of this stuff as well. Well, no, no, no. It's not a gate. The gate represents access to God. Or it could be a gate. No, 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 no. That's not spiritual enough. The horse represents strength, you know, and it's like, or it could be horse. No, the city, the city, it's not a city. Don't picture a city. It's not a city, it's more spiritual than that. Cities, they represent relationship. And so, what this city is speaking of is relationship. And then there's a river, but it's not a river. It's not a river. The river represents the presence of God. Nope, it represents the grace of God. Nope, it's flowing with blood. It represents the redemption of God for the healing of all nations. You know? Has anyone been in this place when you read the book of Revelation? Because you don't know what to do with some of the stuff. You take the things that are very clear that I believe God designed to help us. A bridge. That's supposed to connect us. We know what a city is. We know what a country is. We know what a tree is. A river is. We can't imagine this world without those things. Why would we imagine the new earth without those things? So how do we do it? I guess was was my question as I read the book of Revelation. Like, Like how do I know? Is this literal or is this figurative? Do I take this seriously? Like that's a river... Like there's really a river? Or or is it a symbol of something more? Is it an allegory? How do I know what to spiritualize and what to take serious? Because I think what's happening for many of us is we're spiritualizing the whole thing away. No, 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 it's not that. It's not that real. It represents a symbol. And it's it's very off-putting to many of us. There's nothing material about it. Nothing we can sink our teeth into. So here's what I want to propose, because this is uh, not in my wheelhouse. This should be a whole class probably taught on how to interpret the Bible. But here's what I want to suggest. Could it be both? As you read the Bible, instead of taking a position that says it's either literal or it's figurative, it's either a symbol or it's serious. Can it be both? And can both be your default position for now until you take a class and someone tells you better than this? When you read it, can you go, that's probably a symbol and it might be literal. That literal, that might be there. Listen, here, here's what's gone on forever. The ark was a symbol of something. And then it was, it was actually there as well. You could touch it. Right? We, we, we know this. It was both uh, literal and figurative in that sense. When, when, when Jesus shows up on the scene and, go, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, sins of the world. He doesn't mean, Behold an animal, woolly and white, coming my way. It's not literal in that sense, but John is saying something true about what Jesus will do. Am I right? It's both symbolic, spiritual, and it's it's literal. Jesus will take away the sins of the world. I love it at weddings when they say this this is a, a symbol of eternity. It's a symbol of eternity. And it's like, no, it's it's a ring. That's a ring, man. I like my ring. It stands for something. And you can actually touch it. When you read the book of Revelation, when you read this apocalyptic literature, I would love for your default position to be, maybe it's both. Maybe, maybe there's a throne. Like, like a real throne. We know what a throne is. We don't have to read that and spiritualize it away. It's like, I know what a throne is. But maybe it also represents something as well. That's what I got for you. Your, again, do you you get what's happening? Because you don't know how to understand some things, you're throwing it all out. Do you get what's happening? So here's the deal. It's like we can't take it literal because this stuff's crazy. So it must be symbolic. And if it's symbolic, then it's subjective because I think it symbolizes this and somebody else thinks it symbolizes this. And all of a sudden, it's me- it means everything and nothing at the same time. There's nothing concrete about it. So it's a fine line between saying that's a symbol and then it becoming completely subjective and meaning nothing. It might be a throne. There might be a river. There might be a tree. What if it's both? What if it's actually there? And what if it means something? Your narrow view of redemption. My narrow view of redemption is in the way of me understanding heaven. Getting a clear and compelling picture of it. You've got to get rid of your narrow view of redemption. Get a big, broad idea of what redemption will do. Again, the gospel is not just good for us. It's not just good news for our souls. The gospel is good news for all of creation. All of creation is groaning. The redemption of Jesus Christ will touch everything that was touched by the fall. Everything. If you want a a bigger view of the redemption brought about through Christ, I would encourage reading Colossians But redemption in Jesus Christ means the restoration of a good creation. Colossians 1.15 The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, that he might have the supremacy. Whoa, sorry. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Not just souls. Not just sinners. All things reconciled to him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Eugene Peterson in the message does an amazing job with this. He says... He, Jesus, was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, He's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is He, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in Him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of His death, His blood that poured down from the cross. Humanity, earth, under a curse, affected by sin and death, and the fall is affected the fall has affected far more than you know, and Jesus is working to redeem humanity. Your body and your spirit. You. When God made you, when He made us, we weren't fully human until we were body and spirit. He will redeem all of you, everything affected by sin. Everything touched by the fall. Jesus came to save sinners who were damned to hell. That's absolutely true. But He also came to redeem everything touched by sin and death. Redemption will go as far as the fall. If it was touched by sin and death, it will be touched by Jesus Christ's redemption. Redemption. You must have a bigger view of redemption in order to get what's happening in heaven. In order to get God's plan, it can't be reduced to God's plan is just to save souls. God's plan is to redeem, to redeem all of creation. Resurrected lives in resurrected bodies with a resurrected Christ on a resurrected planet. That's his plan, that's how far his redemption goes. Listen to this quote, I found it so inspiring. Whatever sin has touched and polluted, God will redeem and cleanse. If redemption does not go as far as the curse of sin, then God has failed. It doesn't just touch part of this and then He bails on the rest because it's too tainted. He doesn't want it. That's not what happens. He'll redeem everything touched by the fall, by sin, death. Whatever the extent of the consequences of sin, so must the extent of redemption be. Everything that was affected by the fall will one day be redeemed by Christ. It's starting to get clear, it's starting to get really compelling. Get rid, get rid of the clamor about the end time. Stop thinking about tribulation, start thinking about our destination. Get rid of this Greek thinking, this nonsense that what is material does not matter to God. Nonsense. It's not what the Bible teaches. Get rid of this idea that you just have to spiritualize or allegorize everything about the end away because of, I don't know whether to take this serious or if this is symbolic. And then broaden your view of redemption. Because if it was touched By sin, it will be touched by Christ. Clear the stage. It is more concrete than you think. More physical than you think. More exciting than you think. Your enemy, your enemy lies about God's people. Your enemy lies about God's person. And your enemy lies about God's place. We've believed nonsense about heaven that we exist as disembodied spirits somewhere out there. There's something more to it than that. I would like to end our time with a video. Having cleared the stage, would you watch this? And then I'll close us in prayer. So, in the Bible, Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city That I'm compelled to find Oh I love the flowers and trees And the smell of the grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life am I